Hi everyone, welcome back or welcome to 10 Minute Dharma. My name is Bavin. 10 Minute Dharma is my apparently not so weekly podcast where I go into Hinduism, comparative religion, philosophy, and spirituality in 10 minutes, give or take, depending on the topic, of course. This podcast is to educate, and my intention is not to convert or promote religion. Rather, this is more about me sharing my inquiry and journey into Hinduism and comparative religion, which I hope can help you on your own path for personal growth. While I mostly focus on Hinduism, I do draw on other beliefs and in the future I aim to explore other traditions and their influence on me, of course. For example, I fully intend to dedicate an episode on Moses and how his story or dharma brought me meaning to my life. For episode 3, we're going to go through the first set of what I call Hindu First Principles, Part 1. I came up with these quote-unquote Hindu First Principles on my own. Without my First Principles, it was near impossible for me to begin to understand the divine. You may vibe with them or you may not, and that's totally okay. Hinduism is very difficult to sift through. However, I think I managed to distill everything down to a set of foundational principles to help everyone, whether you're Hindu or not. I take an engineering systems thinking approach, something I wish more educators should focus on. With a systems approach, we focus on repeatable fundamentals. If you understand the fundamentals, you can understand more with little effort. I'll try to compare the first principles to other beliefs and in some instances, science, which I hope will make it easier to understand. I'll likely revisit these first principles as I develop a deeper understanding of Hinduism. In episode three, we'll focus on four first principles for now. And then in a few more subsequent episodes, I'll emphasize a few more. I couldn't atomize this episode any further. I lost the plot when I tried to separate these four, these first four principles. This might actually be the hardest episode I'll ever have to record, and one that I'm quite nervous doing, if I'm honest. Probably why I delayed it so much, and I'm not sure why. Maybe because it's a little controversial and I'm putting myself out there. As a result, I'm trying to approach episode three like a careful, meticulous brain surgeon. With that said, surprise, surprise, once again, I am way over my goal of 10 minutes. It's all right. First principles are important though, and I do thank you for your time and patience. I can't underscore this enough. I really struggle with this episode, and it's a blessing nonetheless. I'm confident once we finish all the first principles, subsequent episodes will be more in line with the name of the podcast. Otherwise, we'll have to rebrand to 30-Minute Dharma, and we don't want to do that, obviously. So, let's begin. The first, first principle. Hinduism is a monotheistic religion and, more importantly, a way of life. The actual name of Hinduism is, bear with me, it's a hard, it's a tongue twister for me, Sanatana Dharma, which loosely translates to the, the eternal path. And yes, it's another reference to Dharma. There's a lot of different branches and offshoots, but ultimately leads to the same holistic understanding of God. Hint, hint, wink, wink. Now you can figure out where the word holy came from, whole and holistic, holy. Hindus don't subscribe to Hinduism as a religion. We only say it's a religion because it's the only word in English that comes close to describing Hinduism, but simply referring to Hinduism as a religion is tenuous at best. Rather, I encourage you to try to view Hinduism as a method, or a way of life for the individual, in that every aspect of our lives has a Hindu component, everything from our names to what we eat and how we conduct important life milestones. 
These are not mandatory, rather it's meant to encourage us to think about our interconnectedness of the world. You'll understand why in a few minutes. We're also encouraged to change and adapt. We are meant to constantly have a discussion with our relationship to reality in order to examine the interconnectedness because the universe is always changing. It's in a state of flux. We as individuals bear the responsibility to find our balance through self-discovery and liberation. This is why Hatha Yoga is an excellent metaphor for Hindu philosophy. You're always moving into asanas or body postures and adjusting, trying to find balance in your place in the world. How each of us finds balance depends on our own constraints and pain points. Consequently, Hinduism is highly esoteric because it places a huge emphasis on self-discovery. When it comes to God, Hinduism defines God in relation or rather a representation of the underlying unity of the universe, the interconnectedness of reality. While there are agnostic and atheistic denominations in Hinduism, it's not commonplace, but it should still be accepted with dignity. In fact, I would argue Buddhists are a special atheist group of Hinduism that became its own method, which we will likely dis dissect in detail in later episodes. With that said, what is God to Hindus? We'll start with the description of God in Islam, as this is also a comparative religion podcast. Here is what the Quran, Surah Al-Anam, verse 103 describes as God. For the sake of time, I'll go right into the English translations, unless I feel it's appropriate to include the original voice. Although, classical Arabic, light Sanskrit, is a beautiful language, and I envy those who are fluent in it. So, verse 103. The eyes do not perceive him, but he perceives the eyes. He is all subtle, the all-aware. I really like this description. God is all subtle. Now let's compare it to what is said in the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 8, verse 9. For those who want to learn more about the Bhagavad Gita, please check out episode 2 where I go over the Gita at a high level. So, chapter 8, verse 9. God is omniscient, the most ancient one, the controller, subtle than the subtlest, the support of all, and the possessor of an inconceivable divine form. He is brighter than the sun and beyond all darkness of ignorance. As you can see, the definitions are similar, with an interesting emphasis on subtle. You see similar definitions in other religions as well. So, God is formless, infinite, transient across space and time, but subtle day to day. Much like our interconnectedness with everything, it's subtle and in the background. So far, so good. But it starts getting more complex, so let's strap in. The second principle is that the universe is made up of energy. I don't need to go into physics here to support Hindu theology, but we Hindus believe in, a, in an internal divine energy. God is derived from the energy. I have a background in science and I thought this was pretty neat that Hindus anchored energy as a belief many millennia prior to our understanding of the laws of thermodynamics, Newtonian physics, or Einstein's special relativity. It makes you wonder how much our ancient ancestors really knew. Now, there are two important types of energy you need to be aware of. These are directly cited in the Gita. In chapter 7, verse 4, Krishna explains this type of energy to Arjuna. Earth, water, fire, air, space, mind, intellect, and ego. These are eight components of my material energy. In the following verse, verse 5, Krishna goes on to say, Such is my inferior energy, but beyond it, O Marty, armed Arjuna, I have a superior energy. This is the Jiva Buddha, or the soul energy, which comprises the embodied souls who are the basis of life in this world. 
Let's spend some time going over these two types of energies. We are always aware of the material energy. This is the reality before us. In Sanskrit, this is called prataki. I think that's how you pronounce it, prataki. Prataki is everything we experience in our senses. Prataki is so strong that it can prevent us from seeing. But the sight in this context is faith, faith in a higher power, or better said, in a subtle power. The material world prevents us from having faith in it, in an interconnected divine. Let's imagine the material realm as a dense ocean fog that hides the coastal landscape. And this landscape represents the truth we seek, but it's obfuscated by this foggy material energy. This truth in question is Shakti or soul energy, also known as Diva Booth. If you ever heard the term Kundalini awakening, this is the result of Shakti energy going up the chakras and experiencing a seizure-like enlightened state. I found it neat that Hinduism had categorical binaries with energy, because even in astrophysics, this is something we're starting to uncover. We are aware of matter, but we can confer the presence of dark matter, which, is, which makes up 85% of the observable universe. But dark matter is beyond perception of our senses. So even in astrophysics, there's this notion of seen and unseen matter. This leads into our next principle, number three. God is non-dualistic. Non-dualism implies everything beyond our understanding through an interconnected, non-exclusionary oneness. Even our idea of oneness implies there is more or something excluded. For example, one versus many. It's hard for us material beings to even conceptualize what an infinite, fourth-dimensional oneness means, so we have to scale it down to our three-dimensional material plane. Okay, so I know I already mentioned the idea of an infinite God in principle number one, so why am I specifically calling out the concept of non-dualism as a separate principle? To answer that question, I spent a good six weeks, maybe nine weeks, trying to write this portion of the podcast. It's arguably the most important, and it requires pedantic patience Otherwise, it's like walking through a field of landmines. With non-dualism, we'll never truly understand what non-dualism means, because we are material beings. But we can get close by working with our constraints in the material plane. Let me show you how. In Hinduism, understanding the concepts of masculine and feminine are crucial to understand Hindu symbolism and thus the meaning behind many motifs. In fact, I would argue every religion and tradition builds on the concepts of masculine and feminine, but Hinduism is unabashedly upfront about it. I'm willing to contend that we can safely assume where our symbolism of masculinity and femininity comes from. It's the two forms of energy I mentioned earlier, material or prathiki and divine or shakti. God is both masculine and feminine, but beyond the concepts of any sex or gender as well, there's a tendency to think of God as an old man with a white beard. This is very much a westernized artistic representation of the Father and the Holy Trinity with the Son and the Holy Spirit making up the other parts. With that said, why don't we take a blank page? Funny side note, I actually wrote start with a clean slate, but I'm not sure if people understand that reference anymore. Anyways, I encourage you to remove any concept of gender in God with whatever metaphor that implies start fresh. Let's start by unifying two halves, the binaries of masculine and feminine, the original yin and yang. Why are the binaries yin and yang symbolically important? 
when we boil it down, our observable universe works on the principle of presence and no presence. Think about it from the most basic aspect of a reality, light. Light is a particle wave, up and down, light and no light. Even with matter, there is matter and then the unseen dark matter. This is why hide and seek is the first game we, we, we learn to genuinely adore as infants. It's the one we understand intuitively, just like the wave of light. It appears and disappears. Surprise! Presence and no presence is the basis of reality. Notice I didn't say hiding. It's not hiding. It's always there. I'll share a few videos in the show notes that discuss the nature of light as a particle wave with the famous double slit experiment, as well as a diagram of light waves. And then I encourage you to watch a baby and their parent playing peekaboo and think about the experience as a wave. Continuing on, we can also interpret presence and no presence as form and no form. When light waves strengthen or shorten in different ways, you get different colors and types of light, like infrared. How light and no light works together shapes everything about our observable universe. The eternal shifting of presence and no presence, or the spinning yin and yang symbol, is the engine of our reality. This is why with the yin and yang, you should always view it as stationary. But if we spin the yin and yang symbol, we get the experience of presence and no, and no presence with the alternating spinning pattern of white and black, which makes a gradient of gray. Kind of represents the illusion of our reality. The gray illusionary gradient of the spinning yin and yang is the very constant that powers all our amazing computers, binary, zero and one, alternating off and on at light speed. So we can stream content like Kid Cudi's Intergalactic or my podcast, 10 Minute Dharma. So at its core, nature and even technology works in pairs. This is why we need to see the world as masculine and feminine. This is a universal pattern, a divine law, if you will. Nearly all the animal species on this planet are two sex species, with only five known to be asexual. Yes, exceptions occur, and that's also important, as I'll get to that in a moment. Unfortunately, I don't know if you noticed, humans are dim-witted and clumsy. We need words through metaphors to evoke meaning in order to comprehend divine interconnectedness or non-dualism. So, for our first principles, think of masculine energy as form and feminine as formless. Or potential. Formless is not negative here. In English, sometimes we associate words like formless with negativity or something bad. But I encourage you to think of masculine and feminine like concave and convex or insider and outside, two components of a whole or two sides of the same coin. Here's an analogy that helps me. The feminine is like a beautiful sandy beach and the masculine is a sandcastle a child made it's a it's form of the formless, that is, the sandcastle still sand. This is important. Masculine energy is a variant form of feminine energy. Feminine energy is the canvas and the ultimate source of power in the universe. This is what Shakti is. It's the primordial energy. If you remember my intro episode, how I mentioned Om vibrated across space to create the universe. This is also the energy of Shakti. Everything comes from Shakti. Therefore, God is a masculine manifestation of the feminine Shakti, the sandcastle on a beach, a focal point or portal into an interconnected infinity. By going through the sandcastle, masculine, aka form, you can understand the beach, feminine, aka formless. As a result, 
I and many other people refer to God as a he, because masculinity represents form. But I also know he's beyond any concept of he or she. Remember, an infinite everything, non-dualism. So yes, while God is not just a he, he is a he to many believers regardless of religion. But why is God a he exactly? Why does masculine represent form? Can't the feminine be form? Yes, and but also kind of no. So, I want to unspool a universal, controversial truth about humanity and why I believe we as a sentient species generally decided to symbolically represent masculinity as form and femininity as formless. I need to highlight again, these are just categorical labels. Don't view formless as something negative. Formless in this context implies potential, like a beautiful Turks in Caicos Beach, or what works better for me, a box of Lego. There's only a bliss with a box of Lego. Across every culture and civilization, men needed to be taught how to be men through rituals and initiations. Women are gifted and innately aware. They know their potential as gatekeepers of life because their ability to give birth. Even without teaching women anything, women knew their roles. Men didn't. As a man, I always found this so cool. Something that I've always deeply appreciated about women is their instincts as a caregiver. Growing up with many Indian aunties, they all in some ways felt like surrogate mothers to me. You can trust them, most times anyway. <laughs> there is a neat and, of course, controversial study with monkeys that suggests how deeply ingrained our instincts go. This study was later popularized on BBC Two with Michael Mosley. I'll link the video in the show notes, but let me summarize the clip. As an aside, I did not think I would draw from my primatology class I took in university, but oddly enough, here I am. Life is funny that way because one thing that you'll take away from this episode is that Hinduism is at its core the study of ecology as a philosophy. Every bit of symbolism is tied back to what is observed in nature. I guess my bachelor's in science and anthropology wasn't for nothing. In retrospect, I guess I was studying the fundamentals of Hinduism without even knowing. Anywho, I need to stop my tangents because those who know me know about my tangents and I just tangented a tangent. All right. Okay, back to it. In the BBC Two clip, researchers put two kinds of toys in a pavilion of Barbary macaque. If it helps you visualize, these are the types of monkeys that that they keep in those like weird, silly African lion safari parks where you drive and damage your car voluntarily because you have nothing better to do. All right, sorry, anti-consumer comedic tangent there. Let's, let's move on. The researchers put toy cars and dolls in the pavilion to see how the monkeys would react. It's a very controversial study, but we have to look at the data. Without going into numbers, the vast majority of the male apes interacted with the cars and most of the female apes interacting with adults. At least from this study, we can derive that monkeys and therefore primates like us have a conserved innate draw towards things and beings, male and female respectively. Nature is inherently conservative. It takes the least resistant path. Evolution has conserved this instinct in us, but of course there are some exceptions. Even with the Barbary macaques, there were some exceptions, and this is important to note. Nature has variations. So when it comes to toy preferences for these monkeys, the same variations will manifest in, in humans. 
This is why gender fluidity in Hinduism is symbolically everywhere. We recognize both the majority and the exceptions. A man with more feminine qualities, or perhaps even someone who is transgendered, should technically be accepted in Hinduism. However, this topic has a lot of nuance which we won't get into today. I'm planning to devote an entire episode on the topic of gender identity so people understand the Hindu method of navigating this topic. But broadly speaking, men have to be formed, women don't. If cute monkeys and energies don't convince you, let's scale down developmental biology and genetics. We have to add the Y chromosome to form men because guess what? We are all, by default, female. There's even a congenital condition called Turner syndrome where the woman only has one X chromosome instead of, instead of the traditional double X pair. So even without an additional chromosome, humans are all women by default. Just because it's an awesome clip, I'll include a clip from Jurassic Park that explains this concept since this was a huge plot point in the movie. What I described to you is what we call a fractal pattern. The same patterns repeat at different levels and scales of analysis. The veins of the leaf are the same pattern of blood vessels in our bodies and scaled up to the flowing rivers on Earth and likely at one point Mars. There is a picture I made in the show notes that kind of, that kind of shows the comparisons of these patterns. Fractal patterns are absolutely crucial to understand divinity. Like a fractal pattern, the entire universe is within us so we can scale our reality to the fourth dimensional divine and obtain a holistic understanding, i.e. God, and therefore he is a he in our universe. We have to form him through the formless because that is how nearly all male animal life evolved on earth. We Hindus subtly know this and we have it deeply ingrained in our practice. For example, we refer to Krishna, one of our avatars of God, with his consort Radha. We refer to them together in a specific way. We recite Radha Krishna. The feminine comes first even when evoking God's name. Several other mantras are like this as well, formless then formed, respectively X chromosome, Y chromosome, feminine, masculine, in that order. Neat, eh? If we tie it back to the two types of energy mentioned in the Gita, I have interpreted masculine energy as material, i.e. form. Feminine energy is shakti or the divine, formless or potential. One of our deities, Parvati, who is the consort of Shiva, is occasionally depicted with only two arms when beside Shiva, while many other deities have multiple arms. For the curious, there's a picture in the show notes. Parvati can be interpreted as a pure manifestation of Shakti. She only needs two arms because she's that powerful. It's symbolically important because it shows women have immense power, but it's a subtle power similar to the subtleness of God. She subtly props up Shiva as the destroyer deity. We'll touch on more of this later in the episode that I have planned around the deity Kali. Now, if you think this symbolism is only in Hinduism, think again. Let's compare this to Adam and Eve in Genesis. After all, the secondary purpose of this podcast is comparative religion. Never forget, Eve became self-conscious first. It was Eve who experienced the danger of the world, i.e. the snake. Why? She is the caregiver. She had the most at stake as the potential mother of children. Adam was the lazy one who wanted to stay in paradise. There's a lot of lost meaning in the Adam and Eve story, and it's unfortunate. This story is not patriarchal, and I will fight tooth and nail to defend that point. The true meaning behind Adam and Eve was wrongly co-opted into an anti-woman story by, ironically, 
insecure men, i.e. the unenlightened hedonistic atoms of the world. It's absolutely clear to me, the story of Eve and what she represents, just like Barvati, it's the power of women. Women are the ones that wake up men to rise to their potential. I want to highlight here, this is another example where the feminine and its power comes first. So, that's my high-level interpretation of masculine and feminine, and why I believe it's easier for our understanding to refer to God as, as He, because it's, it's a scaled-down fractal metaphor of how nature works. But the main point is that God is a masculine manifestation of the feminine. By unifying the binaries and establishing the interconnectedness, this is the best we can do to understand the infinite non-dualism from the point of view of our material plane of existence. However, as we will get into later episodes, Hinduism, of course, and absolutely allows you to devote yourself to a feminine god. This is sometimes highly needed and encouraged. We'll soon understand over the next few months that the context of the situation changes your needs for different deities in Hinduism, which is pretty cool. I want to be crystal clear. By no means am I implying women should be restricted to a caregiving role. Men can also be excellent caregivers and women can be battle-ready, fierce warriors, something even several of our feminine Hindu deities embody. I'm simply highlighting innate instincts that have been documented in the academic literature. We have to attempt to respect people's interests and natural leanings, which is one of the many puzzle pieces we have, we have to solve as we figure out our respective dharmas. Going forward, I'll try to highlight both masculine and feminine qualities of our deities where appropriate. Okay, oof. That was a rather long explanation, but I thought it was important. Let's move on into the fourth principle, and that is God acts out the drama of the world by wielding these energies. Hindus assume everything and everyone is God. We are the manifestation of God acting in his theatrical play. The world is what we call Maya. The fog I mentioned before, the illusion that manifests from the fog of the material energy, just like watching a Broadway show. The audience, aka us, is so immersed in the act that we lose awareness of everything. We're trapped in the fog, bounded by illusion. On that note, there's something I recently learned called the double E scientific method, which may loosely allude to this principle. In scientific experiments with animals, let's say mice or insects, we design the experiment in a way that the animals are not really aware of our presence. We try not to interfere with their world, and we assume we're smarter than them. For the most part, when the experiment's running, they have no idea, to the best of our understanding, that we are observing them. This is a philosophical assumption in the scientific method that, that can be scaled to us, that maybe on another dimensional plane of existence, we might also be an experiment. Perhaps we're all God's scientific experiments. Who knows? It makes sense, right? Maybe? Okay, let's move away from conspiracy theories. Here's the analogy that works for me to explain this principle. In all fairness, I developed this analogy through going over Neville Goddard's literature. I'll link in, I'll link in the show notes. The world before us is God's dream, just like how we create the dreams in our mind, but the character and events in our dreams are still us. We are God. We are his subconscious. We're the characters in his dream of the material world. All right. Wow, that was a lot. Okay, so let's summarize our first four Hindu first principles. Wait, let me, in parallel, 
explained that let's imagine God as a child in his room while we review these principles. So first, Hinduism is a monotheistic religion, but in reality, it's, it's more so a way of life or a method to understanding our niche or dharma. There is an infinite unifying unseen force whom we call God, who is formless and transient across space and time. He represents the interconnectedness of our reality. Back to our analogy, this is the child in his room. We don't see, but we can hear him playing through the door. Second, our universe and thus God is made up of energy. There are two types of energy, material and divine, pratiki and shakti, respectively. Shakti helps us form pratiki. The child has Lego everywhere. This could be pratiki or the material form and the and the imagination of a child or the creative force is Shakti, the divine energy. Third, God is non-dualistic, which is hard for us to conceptualize being material beings. So to help us understand non-dualism, we focus on our understanding of everything using unified binaries. So God is both masculine and feminine at the same time. Maybe this is where the child begins to sort Lego pieces, where he begins to form the material world by building components and structures, and those get put into a pile that might be called masculine, all while inspired by the creative feminine, looking at the, the pieces scattered around the floor, that's kind of like the beach sand of that beach analogy. This is the feminine or the creative force. And fourth, God is wielding all the energy to create an illusion to act out his play. We are all part of his play which is our self-conscious reality. The child now plays with Lego, building ships, planes, hangars, destroying them in line with the story he's, he's acting out. We are all the Lego minifigures subtly experiencing God's crazy fun plot. Not bad, eh? It took me a couple of years to lay all this out in my head and weeks to write this episode out, but I found it really helps. Further, I wrote these principles agnostically, I think you can apply these principles to any religion and garner the same understanding of reality. I hope you all now understand why I couldn't split this into more episodes. We will lose the plot between how these first four principles are linked. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed my third episode. Before I end, you may be asking, what about the elephant head deity Ganesh? Or Bavin, what are you talking about? Hinduism has an entire pantheon of deities. How can it be monotheistic? I'll explain that in the next episode. It's part of the next set of first principles, and I promise it will all make more sense. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a like, comment, and subscribe. I'm hosting this podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. Any support is greatly appreciated. Take care, everyone. May you find and act on your dharma.